five. Two. Eight. Two. Hello and welcome to the second episode of 5282. Why 5282? Well, if you're a knitting fan and expecting a feature about the number 5282, warm, chunky sweater, I'm going to show Kevin a picture. Oh, yes. Yes, very nice and warm looking. Very nice. Uh, sadly, you're going to be disappointed. Sorry about that. This is a <coughs> podcast exploring popular and fringe culture, focusing on music, film and television. We contend that between 1952 and 1982, Western popular culture underwent many dramatic changes, a bit like British Prime Ministers in 2022. But we are nothing if not contrarians, and so we discuss culture from any time and place that takes our fancy. In this episode three, we will be making suggestions for your consuming pleasure, and we'll discuss what would the film of A Clockwork Orange be like if directed by Ken Russell. I am joined by filmmaker, photographer and blogger Kevin Petch. Hello. Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm all right. Great. And musician, cinephile and poet William Astbury. Hello, Daisy. Good afternoon. On with the show. Oh, it's wonderful to have you back. Well, we weren't sure whether or not we'd have you with us today. We start every episode with No Sherbet Sherlock. This time, we are recommending three albums you have definitely heard of, but may not have listened to. Kevin, you going first? I am, sir, yes. Uh, Sparks, the girl is crying in her latte. It's Ron and Russell's 26th studio album and their fifth on the legendary Island Records label. Following Kimono My House, Propaganda, Indiscreet and Big Beat, all released between 1974 and 1976. Their last four albums, including a collaboration with Franz Ferdinand under the aptly named FFFS, if I get that right, uh, which means Franz Ferdinand and Sparks, and probably not what other people are thinking. Um, it reached number 17 in the UK album charts, while Hippopotamus, the steady drip, 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 and this new one all climbed to number seven. There are 14 tracks in all, the title track is backed with a great video featuring Kate Blanchett and is, for me, the standout song. Others of note include Veronica Lake, the catchy Nothing Is As Good As They Say It Is, and the minimalist Escalator. All in all, this is another great album to add to an incredible back catalogue. If you get a chance to, to see them live, just get a ticket and go. I've seen them twice. And each time, it has been a privilege. Also, Edgar Wright's documentary, The Sparks Brothers, is certainly worth a look. So there you go. Sparks, the girl, is crying in her latte. Very good. I'm, uh, I'm not as huge a fan as you, but I've mm. followed Sparks for, it seems like, four or five decades now. Yes, yes. Yeah, I was never sure back in the 70s. Um, they were one of those bands which had a foot in like almost a serious prog camp, almost. Mm. You know, or a serious rock camp. I hate yeah. using that word prog, really. Yeah. Uh, and being a pop band, you yeah. know, there's a few like that. So, Bill, you have an album for us? Yeah, I'm going back into archaeology, David. You know, it's always me, into the archaeologists. Um, I'm bringing in Renaissance's first album. And now, lots of people will think, oh, Renaissance, they're quite well known. Well, they are, except... Um, this is the original Renaissance, which has a tenuous connection with the Renaissance that recorded a host of albums in the 1970s and had a hit single in the late 70s. They did, yeah, yeah. The second sort of lead singer, Annie Haslam, they broke, they broke into the mainstream with what everybody will probably remember as the Northern Lights. Right, yeah. Uh, on the Warner yeah, Brothers label. It, yeah. yeah, it got to number 10 in 1978. Right, yes. Yeah. Great, great song. 
Well, but completely different to what what you're talking. Well, about. very different, and uh, you know, this is more my area of in, interest. That the original band, which could have fit, fitted into our former uh, sort of feature about would they be remembered after one album, was the brainchild of uh, former uh, Yardbird singer Keith Relf and drummer Jim McCarty, who in June 1968 just left. The Yardbirds in the hands of Jimmy Page, who we know what happened to the story there. Uh, or we should, children. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and because they wanted to follow uh, a more sort of softer, less guitar hero orientated track, uh, I wouldn't say that it was a, like a, a folky, sort of totally folky track. And they formed this band after a few tryouts of things called Renaissance that made a, their first album on Island Records again. Oh, they, you know, you the, the famous Island Records. The album has some wonderful songs on. I think it is kind of uh, sort of show, uh, sort of stands out in one sense because it has these classical joining bits in between the tracks sort of stolen from great piano works which some people might not sort of totally approve of and they did make a second album in, in 1971 which was just released in germany the standout tracks i'd say were well i like all more but my late partner loved all the wanderer and the island i like bullets because you go back into the blues in that what i will say is that it's interesting to know what what inspired me to talk about this record is that recently a five disc set just around this band and this uh, on this record I'm talking about has come out called West Fillmore West and Other Adventures. Yes, thanks, Bill. That's an album I hadn't listened to, and I listened to it the other night. And your late partner had fantastic taste. It's got a couple of very good tracks on it. So my choice is. Another absolute obvious band. I did Sigur Ross last time, and this week it's Underworld. Dubno Bass with My Headman is their third studio album, released in 94, January 94, on Junior's Boy's Own. It's the band's third album and a change of direction from commercial synth pop, which is pretty forget forgettable most of it, to a very heavy, a more inventive electronic dance music, also known as EDM. Uh, with a lot of deeper currents, lots of social commentary and, and interesting things going on. You will have heard of their later single, Born Slippy, which came out two years later. Uh, but this album was created over a couple of years as UK and US dance music grew, following on from the more indie rave culture of 88 to 91. It was becoming more mainstream and commercially minded. In fact, commentators were already saying that rave and dance music was over, by the time this LP came out. Uh, I think some people are still saying that. Mm. Um, this album leaves behind the you've got to be in the know, uh, part of a crowd, um, short-run, white-label culture of early EDM, uh, where it's you know, bang it out, move on quickly attitudes, dropping acts and mixing things up over and over again. You couldn't really keep track. Um, it sees the emergence of Underworld and Orbital and Chemical Brothers and other such bands becoming far more commercially successful. Uh, the other good thing is this is a whole album rather than a, a collection of disparate club tunes and shows a mastery of subtlety and it builds anticipation through the tracks. It mashes up um, very sequencer-driven EDM with ambient, stadium house and some more sort of left-field and avant-garde inspirations. Uh, very densely layered multi-tracked vocals and narrative lines serve to build atmospheres of nights which have gone darkly wrong, fucked up relationships and some characters who are living lonely and slightly repulsive lives. It really perfectly captures the culture bursting out at the stagnating end of a long, busted Tory government. And it's quite a topical <laughs> lesson. Um, there is a 20th... Yeah, we lived through that, Bill. We remember that time. Yeah. Um, Bill just mentioned that his recommendation has a, um, a re-release disc set, and so does this. It's a 20th anniversary five-disc set. Uh, it's got a lot to recommend it, so that's Underworld, Dubno Bass with my head, man.
language is rather picturesque, the meaning is perfect. You flatter yourself. Here at 5282, we like topics that challenge or intrigue. This week, what would the film of A Clockwork Orange be like if directed by Ken Russell? Kevin. Thank you, Dave. So, A Clockwork Orange directed by Ken Russell. Wow. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, an early adaption um, of Anthony Burgess's novel, A Clockwork Orange, was directed by Andy Warhol in 1965. It starred Gerard Malanga as the Alex character, renamed Victor, for this production. In fact, all the names were changed by American screenwriter Ronald Tavel. Edie Sedgwick also stars, sitting through the whole film on a trunk. She never speaks. The camera hardly ever moves either. But what's interesting is the fact that the film opens with an extreme close-up of Gerard Malanga, the same shot used in Kubrick's version when we first see Malcolm McDowell as Alex. So, what would Ken Russell's film, had it come to fruition, have been like? Bill, any ideas? Well, first of all, why didn't it come to fruition? Have we got any... Well, I'm sure you do now. It uh, just It's just one of those things that happens in the film industry. People run out of time, usually. Yeah, I think right. it's just lost in development hell. You know, it gets changed around from one hand to another. Somebody right. else finds the option. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, goodness me, Kevin. It's, uh, I'm, I'm still trying to process it, actually. <laughs> I mean, I think there will be a lot of parallels there. I nearly broke in on you to say I want to see the Andy Warhol version. Um I can loan it to you, sir, if you want to borrow it. Oh, yeah, I'd like to. I imagine that's very, very different. Uh, yes. Uh, there'll be you know, more differences with that than with the uh, Russell and Kubrick. But, mm. I mean, it's, in a way, Russell, uh, I don't know, he was a bit more restrained in the late 60s and 1970s than he came later on. But it's a very much a Russell topic where he could let fly, thinking of something like Altered States, which for mm. a long time I used to think, this is the perfect Russell film because mm. he's not interpreting the uh, life of composer with it through a Russell lens where women in Nazi uniforms are goose-stepping on coffins in a time which was about... 30 years before anything like that might happen. Mm. Yeah, but the, uh, the novel itself is set in a totalitarian state, isn't it? So well, that's uh, what I'm saying. It commentary would, on that. It would, it would fit into the Russell oeuvre quite, quite easily, mm. even mm. if he was more restrained at that time. And, and Kubrick, mm. here we have the man whose every picture is very different from, you know, from each other, mm. whose pictures are almost, some of them are, are genre creators. I was amazed, you see, at one time when I knew less about films or less about Kubrick that that The Shining was the only film that he made like that. And yes, suddenly, was, yeah. suddenly there was a whole host of films with blood spurting out of walls and stuff like mm, that. Mm, exactly. Clockwork Orange is the only film he made like The Clockwork Orange, you know. Yeah, exactly. Famously banned. Um, not, not by uh, the authorities, but... That's but, right. Yeah, it was actually taken away uh, by Kubrick himself. I didn't know that for a long time. Mm. I found mm. it out, you know, around the time he died mm. and it came out again. I think Russell would have started his over-the-topness earlier in one sense. I mean, he's some of his monitor, yes. monitor TV things mm. show a leaning to that because of the subjects yes. like Bruce Lacey. Or I, I think they would have been very similar in certain ways. I think they would have just been stylistically. Yeah. I mean, there's the music thing, isn't there? Both Kubrick and... Um, Russell both like their music, don't they? Yeah, I mean, if you if you go back to the Andy Warhol production, um, you've got you've got music in there like "Nowhere to Run" by Martha and the Vandellas, um, "The Kinks," "Tired of Waiting for You," and the the last time by the Rolling Stones, um, which is something that you would never have believed would have been in a Warhol film. And I think the Rolling Stones um, feature in the Ken Russell alternative universe don't they this is, this is true on the casting side yeah um mick jagger as alex i don't know i mean i think i think he'd be pretty good as, as alex um but other names were being ban banded around as well even the beatles that they, they, they were getting involved in some way 
But um, Oliver Reed would have been a good, a good uh, Alex. I don't, I don't know whether you made a uh, sort of made a little mistake back there, oh. Kevin. But when you said you weren't, you, it was strange for Warhol to use those that music that he used in his film. I thought that would be the sort of thing that Warhol would use because it's very like the Kenneth Anger Scorpio Rising world, isn't it? Mm. To use kind of rock tunes in something, whereas. Um, our Kubrick and Ken, they could use orchestral things, you know, mm. more so. Mm. But I mean, a lot, a lot of the stuff was stuff by, you know, Warhol t um, uh, music that he used. Was a lot of it was the Velvet Underground in his films. Um, oh, is that right? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, as we know, Kubrick actually used some music that was you know, very contemporary in the uh, Wendy Carlos sort of. Yeah, his synthesized, uh, sorry, uh, their synthesized versions of popular classics. They're definitely the William Tell Overture. I can't remember whether the Beethoven is by Wendy or um, whether that's actual orchestra orchestras. Well, there's pa partly it's partly orchestral and pa partly synth. Oh right, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Scenes different times. Right, okay, mm. yeah, because you know, Alex is obsessed with Beethoven. Yeah, the glorious ninth and all that. But yeah, is yeah. he in the book? No, he is. He's definitely a complete obsessed with music in the book. Is right, he? okay. Right. So, yeah. Um, you don't think that uh, sort of, uh, Russell would have had him sort of kicking people's heads into Elgar? And well, I mean, that's, the, that's uh, the thing with, with Ken Russell, isn't it? <laughs> um, it had been... Delius. It, it, well, yeah, De Delius, Elgar. He'd, he'd been making... I think a Delius version would be like a Sam Peckinpah <laughs> slow motion violence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe you're right, but yeah, um, I, 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 I think that it would it would have would have been a classical score. Yeah, yeah. Um, whether it was too early to bring in an, an electronic score, I don't know. Um, Sixty-seven is that is that the time of the. Um, well, it's the time when the synthesizers were coming out in a very primitive way. I mean, switched on Bach, which is the first um, Walter Stroke Wendy Carlos yeah. record of 1968. Yeah. Um, I was, I w actually, I've got another thing that's just occurred to me, Kevin, is that it might have been a lot more obviously England in some sort of way. Now, I know that Kubrick was an Anglophile and he lived here and... Bits of uh, Clockwork Orange were shot at Leeds University and certain other mm. um, modern brutalist architecture was used from other universities in it. Mm. Now, and I think Ken Russell might have done it differently. It might have been a bit more old builds. Right, yeah. If we're thinking visually. Mm. And, the, you know, that's getting away from the more over-the-top sides of... I mean, Kubrick wasn't really over-the-top in one sense, not in the same way as well, so. Ken I, I, could be. Mm. Well, I know he did I know he did things that which were, but he himself didn't seem to uh, sort of relish. I mean, Ken seemed to relish, <laughs> seemed to relish the over-topness where you've just got to think of Salome's last damsel. Yeah, exactly. The devils. Or, or the whore or the devils. Or, yeah. mm. I mean, Women in Love, so early in his actual feature film career, mm. that, yeah, there's the naked male nude wrestling, um, which you know, shocks people at the time, but ain't seen nothing yet. Mm. You know, mm. there's going to be big shockers coming. Yeah, yeah. You know. yeah. So, Kevin, uh, Mr. Russell. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> go on then. <laughs> well, how fearful do you think he'd have been to the book? What would the screenplay have been like? How would it have developed? Yeah, I think he would have been more fearful. I think he would have used more, you know, the the Nadsat's language that's that's evident in the book, um, which is basically sort of Russian English, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, I think he would have used it more than than Kubrick did. Uh -huh. I don't. I I couldn't get enough of it. I thought it was great when when they were, they were coming up about coming up about uh, yarbles and oh yarbles and yeah. devotchkas devotchkas uh, yeah hey Drew you don't crash here yeah. there's only room for mm. one here she comes here she comes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. which is David Bowie of course who was always on top of it as far as what was cool and trendy at the time of course 
Well, David David Bowie, um, when he when he was on the uh, the Ziggy Stardust uh, tour, they came out to Beethoven's Ninth. Yes, yeah. yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I think I should put my fellow presenters off the uh, trail a bit here and interrupt their train of thought because it's worth mentioning. We're going to mention David Bowie a lot. Uh, of course we are. We're gonna no. We're gonna just like it's it's surprising it's taken this long. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Episode three. Yeah, We've we're been trying to restrain restrain we ourselves. ourselves. Yeah, which we don't do it uh, in normally in our conversations. Um, <laughs> we all like David Bowie. Mm. Yeah. Now, in terms of uh, the controversial final chapter, which I know was missed. When the book was published, it was not published in America. The it final chapter wasn't, no. And it no. doesn't appear in the Kubrick book. No. Um, some find it a little unconvincing um, in, in terms of an ending to a novel. Do you think uh, Ken would have gone for it? So I really, I really don't know about that one. I'm, I'm not so sure. Um, it would, would be nice. It would have been nice if there was two endings where, where they would have tagged tag the... The, the 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 lost um, chapter on, on at the end if you wanted to see it. Oh, it's not like Blade Runner, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It's 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 a strange one that because um, they they did say that the um, that that last chapter wouldn't have gone down well in in the United States, but I'm not sure why. Why why, why just outline it for us as as briefly as you can, Kevin. Well, it's a spoiler, isn't it? So we can't really. Well, the last chapter is yeah. spoiler. What for people who haven't read the book? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it concerns all this idea about free will and the process of the state intervening and so on, um, and also which comes into the film. You know, yeah, the great deal. And that's what uh, Anthony Burgess was um, concerned with when he wrote the novel. Rather than yobbo gangs. Yeah, the gangs out the other thing that it was driving him is what is free will, how does violence work in a society, should society intervene to encourage or discourage violence. Mm. Mm. Wasn't it something to do with um when when it, when he wrote he wrote the uh, the book, it was something to do with his wife being attacked by people in military uniform? Uh, yeah, I've read that. Don't yeah. know much about it. Really. Yeah, that, I mean that, that's that's as much as I know about that particular part. But yeah, yeah. Um, well, we're just a, a street gang, some some lads, or, or a street gang. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know. Um, I mean, you think if if I write and think he came out in 1962, yeah, around yes. that time, the book, the yeah. book. Well, yeah. you, you're talking in a time when people were, and they got suppressed, and the Daily Mail type, well, probably Daily Mail or an equivalent. Where we're still going on about youth violence, you know, you've got the teddy boys, you've got mm. sort of ton up boys, you've got coffee bars. Just a bit, you know. a bit too early for modern rockers, though. Oh, it's too early for modern rockers, but the the, te the teddy boy things. kind of, you know, coffee shop espresso machine world, mm. you know, was there. You know, guys mm. with leather jackets and quiffs mm. who might come and thump you or attack you with a razor or, mm. or in the public sort of imagination they might. I mean, I remember being a, a four-year-old in Burton-upon-Trent and there was some coffee bar with Zulu shields on the sides mm. of it and inside, you know, and I didn't go in it. I just saw it from a distance. And one of my grown-ups said to me in hushed tones, you know, that's mm. the so-and-so-and-so coffee bar, some teddy boys, one was knifed in there. Right. You know, and... Mm. <laughs> Yeah, you know. Well, that, mm. is, that is back when knife crime was uh, exceptional, really. Mm. And so yeah, but it, that kind but of image going in the heads of, of people at that time, mm. you can see how that led on to um, Stanley, uh, Anthony Burgess's novel, in one sense. Mm. Yeah, mm. We're, uh, we're never short of a moral panic in, uh, in Great Britain. We, we do seem to, not just in recent years, but historically, it's always some terrible threat or something which is unhinging society and bringing yeah. down the empire. Yeah. In conclusion, um, <laughs> this might sound a bit silly, but I think I think um, Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange is is the most Ken Russell film he ever directed. I I I would uh, yeah I can see that Kevin because um, I've always thought it's a very sort of out there sort of youth world film. Mm. 
if I've seen, I'm thinking about all those films that I like from that era and I was trying to catch up with before I became a cineast as I am now. Though I've always been a bit of one. Was all these hipster films? It's like in my um, when I was talking about Antonioni at one mm. point. Mm. Um, I, I talked about my entry point was Blow Up and Zabriskie Point, you right, know, yeah. and mm. I was always in a in a hurry to see those sort of 65 to 75 films. Well, yeah. you know, 75 not, might not have even been reached when I was in a hurry. Mm. Alice Restaurant, my, my hippie epiphany at that. Mm. So, yeah, I would agree with you in that sense, uh, mm. you know, in one sense, uh, that, you know, his other films weren't quite like that. Not none of them were. No, no, no. no in no. any way, it was it was kind of out of character for for Kubrick to to come up with a clockwork. But he, even Ken didn't really sort of. I mean, he did Tommy, didn't he? And mm. uh, which obviously is about rock music. Mm. He kind of took his while to work his way into that world, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. But they seem both highly influenced by music. They both are. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Mm. They both loved mm. it. Mm. And um, if Ken had directed a clockwork orange. Do you think his career would have gone in a different way or would it have just been another stepping stone to later works? I think, as as Bill said earlier, I think it just brought on the enfant terrible even earlier if that had happened. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Mm. Yeah. I, do, I think both both productions would have been a cracker. I'm, I'm glad we've got Kubrick's, but it would have been really, really interesting to see how Ken Russell yes, fared, fared, definitely. fared with it. Mm. Thanks very much. So that was Ken Russell, the alternative universe where he made A Clockwork Orange. Thanks very much, Kevin. And Bill. But don't hesitate to call on me anytime you need help. Or maybe just plain bored. In this section, we're going to review recent events we've attended. Uh, Kevin, you've been to see a, a film of a sort. Yes, Dave, uh, I've been to see Ziggy Stardust, the motion picture, uh, 50 years ago, July 3rd, 1973, to be more precise. David Bowie did the unthinkable. He killed off his alter ego, Ziggy Stardust. The audience were shocked, but no more than bassist Trevor Boulder and drummer Woody Woodmansey, who were also hearing the news for the first time. To commemorate the 50th anniversary, the film and soundtrack are being re-released like never before. After a limited cinema release in July, a 2-CD and Blu-ray edition and a 2-LP set pressed on gold vinyl, of all things, will be made available. This new version reinstates the medley, the Gene Genie and Love Me Do, plus Round and Round, which all feature Jeff Beck. We get a glimpse of these performances in the recent Moonage Daydream documentary and the picture quality looked incredible. D.A. Pennenbacher's film captured Bowie at the height of his Ziggy Stardust persona and his performance is electrifying. D.A. Pennenbacher will probably be remembered mostly for capturing the likes of Bob Dylan in Don't Look Back, Depeche Mode's 101 and the legendary Monterey Pop. Pennebacker films Bowie backstage too, getting his slap on whilst talking to Ringo Starr. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> um, it's glam rock at its best with numerous costume changes. Moon Age Daydream for me is the performance of the night and Mick Ronson is on fire here, especially during his solo. I went to the global premiere of this and I have to say it looked stunning. Mike Garson, Bowie's pianist, treaters to a pre-panel medley. A discussion followed, which included uh, Garson, plus Ken Scott, who was one of the co-producers on many of Bowie's uh, albums, uh, Suggs, Don Letts, and the actor Richard E. Grant. Woody Woodmansey, the only surviving member of the Spiders from Mars, was there, but wasn't on the panel. I, I, I don't know why. I haven't got a clue why, but it... It should, it should have been there. So, Ziggy Stardust, the motion picture, is released for home viewing and listening on August the 11th, 2023, from the lovely people at Rhino. Thanks so much, Kevin. So, um, is there an extended cinema release, or is it just going straight to streaming? Uh, it's going to be shown a couple more times on uh, on the big screen. Uh, there is talk that it might go on to 
sort of limited general release right, um, that then it comes out on uh, on, on Blu-ray and, and uh, vinyl in August. In August, thank you much. No DVD? Um, I'm not so sure. I mean, a lot of these things are coming out nowadays that they're not even going to the DVD. And no CD? Oh, yeah, yeah, double, C, double CD. Oh, I thought you just said vinyl and Blu-ray, so, yeah. So, Bill, uh, I believe you've been to a concert. Yes, yes, that's right, David. Uh, Martin Taylor, a solo guitarist... I've heard an album, but I admit I'm not really a follower. He's a virtuoso, unlike uh, Soft Machine's John Etheridge, as uh, played for Stefan Grappelli. Finger picks, he makes it look like three lines of music are happening. But uh, he's neither classical or folk, maybe jazz, but not jazz in the pure sense. His play was extremely good and intricate. He tells stories between his numbers, and to me, these competed with the um, rather classic guitar playing. There were stories about his life and his evolution as a musician. He had a guitar that was looked like an, acoust an expensive acoustic guitar, but it was something a lot more, really. He had a lot of hidden electrics in it. It was obviously very custom guitar I think it was something that was specially built for him actually one of his stories he told about playing with his bass double bass playing father and how he used to play guitar and, and some of the numbers the timbre of the bass lines he played remembering that this was a man who could make three lines seem to happen at once sounded so much like a bass that you know you couldn't say that electron electrics weren't involved in that me being a little bit of a, a sort of ham-fisted guitarist myself, even if inspired at some times, I found it very interesting watching his um, the way his hand glid around the uh, fretboard because he did stuff which where he emulated a, a cocktail jazz band, which to me was interesting to see how that happens. Obviously... If you didn't play music or you weren't so interested, that wouldn't be such an interesting thing. So, there we have it. Martin Taylor. Thanks so much, Bill. It's as if he were reaching for something. Something specific. I don't understand it. They'll be masterpieces. And now, that. That's my tribute to John Walters there. Did you say John Waters? No, I definitely said John Walters. Oh, okay. Mr. Mr. Peel's producer. Ah. And um, appeared on the Janice Long Show. People remember that. You uh, know the reference. Yes. So I feel we are going to struggle through justice in the time we have available for our subject today. The British-born surrealist painter and mystic Leonora Carrington. The anti-muse, who at times put two fingers up to the patriarchy running alternative art at the time. Bill... Yes, Leonora Carrington, the original wild child of the uh, early 20th century, or one of the original wild children of the early 20th century. Uh, daughter of a very successful northern industrialist. A textile really. magnet, wasn't it? Yeah, and they yeah. had a big house, Crockley Hall, is it called, near, mm -hmm. near Chorley, but with pretensions to become a, some sort of quasi-aristocrats and he's... Mm. Uh, daughter was uh, on the agenda to become some sort of debutante yes mm. but our oh, Leonora was going to have none of that no of course not uh, she went through a series of schools uh, in her early teens she was expelled from yes two. that's right <laughs> she was expelled and and because of her sort of unique abilities of being able to write backwards and Right with both hands, uh, mm. the nuns at one, I think, thought she was in league with the devil. Yeah, they called it a disease, didn't yeah. they? Which was which ridiculous, is, really. Which and is very odd because it's an insight into her abilities. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's yeah. a talent, I'd say. I mean, she was called <laughs> dyslexic as well, which seems very strange when um, when they mention the next thing. She was born in 1917, and when she was about 17 years old, part of the plan of making her into a debutante was to take her to Royal Ascot, you know, the place where they wear the funny hats. Mm. And she was so fed up that she couldn't get to see the horses in the way that she felt that she should be able to, that she just spent her time and read the whole of 
Isla Singaza by Aldous Huxley that day. Mm. She, she wasn't she wasn't old enough to have a bet either, so that right, yeah. pro- probably put the uh, <laughs> the mockers on it really. Yeah, yeah, she couldn't see any point in being there. No, not really. You know, good uh, book though. <laughs> yeah, and, and also, I mean, she loved horses definitely. Mm. She loved yeah. animals, and this really. Well, she was sent to some debutante's ball where George the Fifth, sorry, George the Third, <laughs> George the Fifth, and Queen Mary, which lots of bright young things would be going to, mm-hmm. and she just eschewed all this at the age of eighteen, I think it was, mm. and sort of went off to London, and yep. was soon to be in a little pokey kind of attic flat, cooking beans over a single gas ring, yeah, uh, virtually cut off by a, a father. Well, I mean, they, were, they weren't impressed by any of it, were they? No, I mean, no, no, no. They, they, they gave her very little financial support, no, which, which is quite sad, really. Well, they kept her going to a certain extent, but mm. in a very minimal way. Mm. They certainly stuck their noses in, because yeah. when she uh, teamed up with uh, Max Ernst, because she went to art college, we should say that, mm. passion to be doing art, mm. and um, she met Roland Penrose, was later married to uh, Lee Miller, was quite mm. a kind of mover and shaker in that British surrealist circle at the time. Mm. She's not as well known as some other people, really. No, no, which is yeah. a shame. Yeah, yeah, I've seen mm. one of his pictures down in Tate, uh, mm. St Ives. Mm. So she met Max Ernst at a dinner party in his honour, didn't she? Yeah, yeah. Around 1937. And he immediately was uh, enamoured by her, and she was enamoured by him. Yeah, I I think it was with the stuff that she was looking at years before, well, not many years before, but um, I think she'd already made up her mind that, you know, they they were going to be together. Had she? She'd seen some of his pictures. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, um, the... the, um, Sorry, the, the um, Herbert Reed's book on surrealism. Well, yeah, which her mother the, bought. Which her mother bought, yeah. Which seemed like, you know, uh, a mother who, if she was following the father's line, you know, she you know, she bought this book, which yes. didn't help their cause. No, not really, no. Yeah. no. So um, how old is uh, Leonora when she meets Max? Leonora would be 20. Max uh, was 25 years older. Mm, married status? Um, married. <sighs> With children. He was, um, yeah, hmm. he hmm? one of those guys severed <laughs> severed his sort of marital links almost immediately. You know, well, when they got to Paris. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he didn't get divorced, and he just left them. You yeah, know, and yeah. Followed his new muse, <laughs> 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 and of course, through Max Ernst, she meets Andre Breton. Yes, yeah. and all these kind of wonderful people. You know. And uh, th- these male surrealists uh, adopted her as a, a femme enfant, mm. which is like their kind of muse, mm. something that she wasn't too happy about, <laughs> I think. Well, she was just a sort of um, talented, beautiful, strong woman, which were male artists at the time were seeking to exploit ruthlessly. Mm. I think you're probably right, David. In a northern yes, lass, yeah, yeah, she yeah. wasn't having it. No, 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 she wasn't, definitely not having it. Though saying that, well... First of all, uh, her father tried to get Max Ernst arrested, didn't he? And uh, <laughs> I think they went down to Cornwall, first of all, and then they go further afield eventually. Well, she goes to Paris, but then they go further afield, don't they, and live in the a, south bliss, of France. a blissful time for a, mm. for a, a short period. Mm. Mm. They're idle and they're rather, well, the Max Ernst kind of, um, from his position... He sort of somehow ignored the the march of his kind of countrymen on France and how mm. France was going to react to that. Mm. And mm. before long, he was clapped in irons. Yeah, the French authorities arrested him. <laughs> more um, than once, and shifting around. Yeah. And, so, and, of course, this had a very bad effect on the young Leonora's mind. Mm. Yeah, it did. She's meant to have uh, been found by some friends doing bizarre things in the garden and... Mm. Almost not, not quite. Just about to lose it, really. Yeah, yeah. So she's driven down to Spain, mm. where she is put into a uh, psychiatric hospital. Mm. If that's not too nice a term for the 
places they put people in those days. Yeah, I mean, she was she was treated with with drugs and electric shock treatment. Which Some was gruesome was drug, really gruesome drugs, which yeah. they yeah. you know could only think up in the nineteen thirties, mm. mm. and electric shock treatment. Yeah, and she narrowly escaped her parents sending her uh, to yet another one by doing an amazing escape strategy, which yeah. is which is told in many different versions of the same story, you mm. know, like all mythologizing kind of famous sort of uh, rebel people, really. Yeah. Yeah, so according to um, Desmond Morris's book, The British Surrealists, um, her nanny, her old nanny, was sent via submarine to, uh, to, to, to get her away. Yeah, that's an incredible story, that, Kevin. Mm, it our, is. Our, our, our 5282 researchers have been on to that, and they, they're finding, they can very find very scant evidence to do it. And it sounds like lots a totally of, impossible idea. Mm. Lots of references, uh, no source as yet, but I'll keep digging. It does seem fantastical, but in a time of war, um, the, um, the Navy sent a spare submarine to send a nanny to pick up a woman from Spain. Mm. But who knows? Mm. Well, even if it wasn't yeah. a spare submarine, it was doing something else just to have a passenger. Yeah, you know, I don't think I like taxis. No, no. Um, I, I think if you've got the money, though, you've got the contacts. I don't know. Also aware that there were other ways of getting to Spain which didn't involve sailing for days in a submarine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the other interesting thing about this story is her escape from the nanny. And there's multiple versions of that too, aren't there, Kevin? <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the best ones, I, I think, is that she, she went out, um, asked if she could buy some, some new gloves, and while she was in the shop, she went to the toilet and disappeared out the back door, which I think is great. Yep. So, so, so good. Uh, so the next thing, of course, is that she goes to the Mexican embassy, doesn't she, because she befriended somebody that uh, then agrees to marry her. Yeah, Renato Leduc, um, an old friend. Uh, but the only way that they could get him out of the country was a manager of convenience, which, you know, she had no choice, really. And I mean, she, I'm talking about a woman now that's 22, 23. Mm. So to put the cat amongst the pigeons, Max Ernst actually arrives in Lisbon. Um, he's in a relationship at this time with, with Peggy Guggenheim, but he's still in love with Leonora, and the two spend many hours together. He tried to get her back, but Leonora has, no, has had no, none of it, um, blaming him for re not rescuing her from the asylum, which is pretty bad, really. They then make their way to America, and uh, after arriving, Max and Leonora keep seeing each other, even even though he's now married to Peggy, who, who tries her best, you know, with the old, the old jealousy, uh, tries to keep it at bay. Um, but she's still happy to exhibit Leonora's work, which I think is quite admirable, really. Well, I'm glad you brought up the work there because we've been doing a lot of biography here, but we haven't really talked about what she's been creating to to this point. So she's in New York. Is it the war still on, isn't it, at this point? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, uh, do you want to go right back? In the, cause well, what, what has she been doing creatively? Well, the thing is, uh, first, you know, the entry card to the world of the big boys... It was 1937 stroke 38, mm. which the Inn of the Dawn Horse. Yes, yes. Which, you know, is like a self-portrait. In fact, yeah. Kevin, you were telling me it is called a self-portrait. It's, it's, got, it's got two titles. Yeah, well, it's got a picture, yeah. you know, central to the picture, or not quite central, but very looming large, mm. is a picture of her in riding jumpers. Yes. And there's horses, you know, uh, a rocking horse, an actual mm. horse, or a Leonora-ish horse. Yes. Um, I mean, she's not quite like a normal horse. <laughs> it's a horse mm. of your dreams. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And then the yeah. hyena, which uh, mm. I think the hyena is going to figure in uh, quite strongly when you start talking about her literary works. Mm. And, of mm. course, soon after that, there was a portrait of Max Ernst himself with the Captain Sensible fluffy um, <laughs> jumper thing on. Yeah, it does, it does actually need to need to be seen, that picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Is that your uh, yeah. favourite, Kevin? It's one of them, yeah, it's one of my favourites, yeah, I, I, I love that. Well, there's lots of great ones. The, the first one I ever saw is Pastoral, which mm. is from 1950, mm. and it just has, it has a pastoral vibe to it, mm. you know, but it looks like it's been put through some weird surrealist gum which uh, sort of like brings on faint traces of Hieronymus Bosch mm. and 
people having a, an idyllic picnic. Yeah. Yep. As well as painting, she has written a book by this point. That's right, David. Her experiences in the barbaric uh, psychiatric hospitals in Spain inspired a painting called Down Below, and she started writing a book then, which I, th I think it took a couple of years to bring come mm. to f proper fruition. So mm. came out 1942, 43. Yeah. I, I, mean, I think she had a manuscript going in 1940. Yeah, I mean, th this, is a, this is an actual novel, isn't it? But it, it's obviously based on fact. Yes, because she's only they're only seen in most commentators are writing one novel, isn't mm. she? So, mm. but this is sort of autobiographical. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, academics discuss this at length. That um, I mean, parts of it are quite fantastical, which may reflect mm. uh, some of the drugs she was given, some of the treatments she suffered. But it is um, a valid read to understand uh, experiences and and how it affected her. Mm. Mm. Well, I'd say it sounds like an admirable surrealist interpretation mm. of her experiences, knowing that the, the dream world is very important mm. in the surrealist mm. manifesto. I mean, Leonora had quite a few eccentricities, didn't she? You know, once covering her feet in mustard uh, in, in a New York restaurant, which was very strange, really. Oh, she did some very strange things in New mm. York, didn't she? Yeah, she also showered fully clothed at a friend's house. Do you think these were things that were... Uh, sort of fall out from a sort of mental condition or do you think they were sort of just, you know, like Salvador Dali mm. is famous for doing totally weird things yeah. that are part yeah. of a self-publicist mm. publicising exercise. Mm. You don't think Leonora wasn't really in that? There might have been a, a surrealistic edge to it, I would have thought, yeah, yeah. something like that. Yes. Yeah, it was mm. an instant with a sheet. Oh, the she, I was going to mention the she. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she, um, she had the, the kind of the habit of, um, standing in front of people and just dropping the sheet, and yeah, there she was. There to she was yeah, in all clear. her glory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. To be clear, a sheet was all she was wearing. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So she was in um, in New York for quite a brief period, really. Mm. This, this first visit with the other exiles. Yes. You know, there was a quite a little coterie of exiles, mm -hmm. uh, and then she goes to Mexico. Yeah, 1943. She goes to Mexico with uh, Deluc. Um, the marriage convenience ended just a year later, which is not surprising, really. Oh, they did they did part on on good terms. Yeah. Um, but whilst in in Mexico City, she met Emerico Vice, a photojournalist, and they married in 1946. Uh, they had two sons, living most of the rest of their their lives really in in Mexico. Although she did spend part of the 60s in in New York City. Yeah. She kept coming and going. Well, I think, I think she did sort of align herself to groups of uh, artists and writers in Mexico. Mm. Early and on. activists and radicals as well. Yes, yes, mm. yes. And she was a very ardent feminist. Mm. Of course, the major thing that appealed to Leonora in Mexico was the Roman Catholicism. It was like a, a hybrid Roman Catholicism that took in strong elements of the indigenous paganism. Yeah, but to be clear, I mean, this is not somebody having a conversion and starting to go to mass, is it? No, no. She's just, just more reconciled with that. Well, she was brought up around Catholic. Of her yeah. life from before, yeah. Of course, the big theme here um, was that she reconciled her own Catholicism or the Catholicism she was brought up with and rejected with the Irish traditions that came from her grandmother's side. And that meant that she could delve very much into the Celtic mythology and, and sort of entwine that in her works. Now, the, the thing is, she's famous for not giving much away about what her paintings mean, really. Mm. Yes. So we, this is all reading off the page, as it were, off the canvas. But, I mean, it's obvious that she's, she's deeply influenced by Irish mythology, the things like the Matter of Britain. I'd say she's got a bit of an obsession with um, maybe... Epona, the horse goddess, because horses and women are constantly there over and over again. So this is obviously a big driving force behind her, her sort of creative, um, creative work. Yes, I, no, that's de that's definitely true, David. Um, you see it all the way through. Also, there's the um, what certain commentators have called the alchemical kitchen as well, which is part of her feminism. Uh, and she never said this herself, but. One of her long-time and uh, fellow exiles, Remedius Barrow, who she was colluded with, and you can see certain 
sort of uh, treatments of certain themes that they both work with in their paintings where had things happening in kitchens almost as though the patriarchal sort of view of the drudgery of the kitchen of the nursery um, of women's life generally that they somehow inverted that and turned it into a magical occultist phantasmagoria yeah that's right bill uh, uh paintings undoubtedly feature many otherworldly characters strange chimeras and uh the occasional kitchen and i've got to um just mention the fantastically named aardvark groomed by widows which is set in a kitchen that's a yeah, wonderful painting david yeah yeah because during this time uh, in Mexico, Leonora is painting, creating sculpture and literary works. And I think, uh, Kevin, that um, she found a very special home in Mexico and they, they took her to their hearts. Yeah, they did. They most, most definitely took her to our hearts. It, she was their painter, not our painter or anybody else's. She was their painter. Um, initially, she, uh, she, she did the painting to, to put the food on the table for her two sons, but obviously... She was a creative sort, so I continued to paint throughout her life. Successfully. I yeah, very successfully, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Interestingly enough, uh, Leonora also had a dalliance with the Mexican film industry in 1973, supervising the artistic design of the sets and costumes for the horror film The Mansion of Madness, based on a short story by Edgar Allan Poe. It was directed by Juan Lopez Moctezuma. There's a watchable print available on YouTube for those interested. And I'll, I'll uh, include links to all these on our social media pages. Yes, it's worth mentioning she was commercially successful throughout the Americas, um, forgotten to a certain degree in Europe. Mm, I'd say so. Yeah, mm. yeah well, maybe never ever sparked off, really, because she didn't mm. stay around too long, did she? Mm. I mean, it, it's coming now. Yeah. Which, which is, which is, which a really is with a lot of these other women, yeah. you know. She, she's, she's getting the adoration now, which, yeah. which is good. She passed away in Mexico City on May 25th, 2011 from pneumonia. Um, I've got some reading recommendations if you like them. Certainly would. Yeah. Okay, so The Hearing Trumpet, a novel uh, published in 1974. Um, it's 76 pages long, and it tells the story of Marion Lefferby, a 92-year-old woman who hears, thanks to her hearing trumpet, her family plotting to, to send her to a retirement home where the residents have to inhabit buildings in the form of igloos and birthday cakes. It's a fascinating read, described by many as the occult twin of Alice in Wonderland. Um, other books um, of interest include the complete um, stories of Leonora Carrington. It contains nearly all of her short fiction, some of which has never been seen in print before. It's a surrealist dream, if ever there was one. Also, the coffee table book, Leonora Carrington, Surrealism, Alchemy and Art by Susan L. Aberth is incredible. It features a plethora of her, her, her paintings, including Lover, The Lovers, Green Tea, Self-Portrait, which is also known as The Inn of the Dawn Horse, which we've talked about earlier, and uh, Max Ernst and The Ancestor. Yeah, we also recommend... Um the Museum of Modern Art website is a good, a good starting point for articles and paintings for free. Ooh. You can Google Leonora Carrington and find a host of um, interviews and some quite academic papers. And, and we'd also recommend The Surreal Life of Leonora Carrington by Joanna Moorhead, published by Virago. Mm. Thanks very much. Music, singing, gibberish. This is the section where we recommend things which might be a bit more obscure, we call it. I haven't heard of that either. I'm going to start. So inspired by our choosing Leonora Carrington, I thought I'd go for a novel which mangles mythology, metamorphosis, mind-spinning structural light and shade. It's At Swim, Two Birds by Flann O'Brien. It's a masterpiece of Irish fiction. I admit this might not be as obscure as some of our recommendations, uh, but I bet most listeners will not have read it. A very brief summary, with no plot spoilers, is a unnamed, lazy, feckless student spends his time drinking, lounging in bed, and thinking about how clever he is at understanding literature. To prove this point, he takes the reader into three stories, 
involving mythological or fictional characters. It becomes obvious that one of these characters is in a separate novel, being written by Trellis, a writer of little talent who is in one of the other stories. I will not spoil how the book develops, but my advice is to take it very steadily and make notes as you go along. It's a classic of modernist <laughs> metafiction. Right, Bill, I believe you're going to cover Jackie Yates. Yes, I am, David. And uh, again, like with uh, Bruce Lacey, I returned to Leeds City Art Gallery and actually the picture by Jack Le- Yates is upstairs there, not far from uh, Lacey's work. And it's uh, called The Mystery Man, paint, or painted in 1942. Now, Jack Yates is the lesser-known brother of the poet, the Irish poet W.B. Yeats, was famed for his sort of dalliance with uh, the mystical and uh, Irish legends like the Celtic Twilight is a book he brought out of stories of banshees and other strange phenomenon. Now, I don't really know much about Jack Yates. I first came across him in Leeds Art Gallery when they had about half a dozen of his pictures out, but they seem to have this one out um, on permanent display. And it's a very small oil on canvas... And it definitely oozes Irishness. It's got two figures on it. One figure's holding a mask. Um, and, and it does have a magical quality to it. You know, and, uh, which I, knowing something about his more esteemed brother, you know, somehow fits in the picture. And I, and I, and I just feel it's just a wonderful little pearl, you know. So an Irish book and an Irish painting. Sounds like we've got a theme going here. Kevin, are the Pet Shop Boys Irish? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm going to talk about the film It Couldn't Happen Here, directed by Jack Bond, famous for his collaborations with Jane Arden. Um, starring the Pet Shop Boys, Neil Tennant, Chris Lord, uh, Joss Ackland, Neil Dixon, Gareth Hunt and Barbara Windsor. It Couldn't Happen Here is essentially a road movie, albeit a surreal journey through the eyes of Neil and Chris and their music. Sadly, it's been unavailable since its release on on home video, but thankfully the British Film Institute came running to the rescue in 2020, releasing it on Blu-ray for the first time. As you would expect, the film features plenty of songs from the Pet Shop Boys albums, including the title track, um, Suburbia, It's a Sin, Rent, West End Girls, Always On My Mind, and King's Cross, which is one of my favourite all-time Pet Shop Boys songs. Favourite scenes? Um, This one involves Gareth Hunt, who is a revelation here, actually. Sadly missed, too. Um, He enters a greasy spoon cafe come fine diner, and much to the amusement of Neil and Chris, takes out a ventriloquist dummy from its case, sits it down opposite him, and proceeds to order breakfast. I've actually started ordering my breakfast like that, uh, much to <laughs> the, the horror of my daughters. <laughs> um, it actually made the film for me. Uh, um, I highly recommend this film. It carries a 15 certificate. Uh, there is a limited edition of the, of the film, which is probably difficult to get now. It, it has a book with it and everything like that. Uh, but... There is a standard Blu-ray edition available and around about 15 quid. So, yeah, I'd buy it. Isn't uh, Jack Bond, uh, you know, a cult 1960s, 70s filmmaker? You know, uh, I think... Ah, Jack. I mean, he's brilliant. As I say, the collaborations with Jane Arden are are legendary, especially the uh, Dali in New York, which is superb. And so, yeah. um, also, it can't it can't happen here. Is that a play on a Zappa song, a track from 1967, 66? I don't know. I, I wouldn't have thought so. It can't it, happen here. It, can't um, happen here. It, it's, it's actually the title of a song that the Pet Shop Boys wrote. Oh, right, OK. Um, just okay. called it It Couldn't Happen Here. It Couldn't yeah. Happen Here. Yeah, that's mm. right. I'm sure that, mm. that Zappa and did something like that. Mm. In a classic piece of uh, non-research, I think it's got a literary... Uh, reference there. Right, okay. Yeah. And here's an idea, lads. Jane mm. Arden. Let's do a program about her. I can't yeah, wait. Yeah, let's. Yeah. 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 Okay, well, thanks very much. That's our recommendations for this episode. Hmm. 
Well, that seems to be all. Well, until we meet again, take care of yourself. This episode of 5282, which is a out of left field production. You can follow us on X at OOLF Presents 5282 and OOLF Presents 5282 on Facebook. And that's for numbers 5282. The producer was Kevin Petch. Engineering and editing was by David Benn. Asbury was on bass guitar. 5282 is part of the Acast family.